I remember the time I heard the two words that no dad ever wants to hear. Teen driver. Okay. Uh, I, I've been lamenting the day and ruining the day and worrying about that day for a long time. But the day my, my oldest daughter got her driver's license, I, I was in a little bit of a shock. I, I, people prepared me, but, but I don't think I was fully prepared for what it actually to happen, the, the impact it would take on my, my blood pressure, uh, my, my insomnia, worrying about what, and, and frankly, my pocketbook, right? My, seeing those insurance rates, I can only imagine when those boys get 16, what's going to happen. So, but what, what I was more than uh, shocked by was the fact that teaching my, my oldest to drive was actually a little bit of a psychology experiment, experiment on me. Right? I learned a lot about myself while showing my daughter how to drive. There'd be times I'd be driving, I'm like, well, why are you doing that? I'm like, well, that's what you do. I'm like, no, I don't do that. He's <laughs> like, uh, why, why are you doing that? I'm like, well, that's what you do. I'm like, no, I don't know. I'm like, why are you doing that? I know it. Oh, that's the way mom does it, right? So, <laughs> but the one thing that I was not prepared for was, uh, was the, the realization that they notice a couple of key phrases that I perpetually say when I'm behind the wheel that I have kind of a running dialogue going on while I drive, and, and there's a couple of phrases that you can expect. If you're in a car with me, you're going to hear, evidently. And one of those first is, is um, don't be that guy. Okay? I, I don't mean it accusatory, but if I'm driving and somebody looks like, I'm looking around, someone looks like they're going to make some reckless or ridiculous move while driving, I'm like, oh, don't be that guy. Come on. Don't be that guy. Or if you're not going to let me merge, right? Okay. We need to have a lesson about zipper merging. Okay. Now here's the deal. I used to think y'all didn't know how to do it, but I've seen you in the drive-thru at Chick-fil-A. Y'all do it just fine. Okay. Uh, So I don't know what's going on. So don't be that guy. The second one, the second one is everybody goes. Come on, everybody goes. And this happens when you are far enough back in the light that you're worried you're not going to make it. Okay, you're in the left turn lane. There's that first person, right, who's checking their email. They know they're getting through no matter what. But then the next three know they're going to get through too. But when you're four, five, six, seven, and all of a sudden you worry that like the person in front of you might see the orange light and press their brakes. Like, no, 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 come on. Everybody goes. Everybody goes. Come on. It is not, it is not a ticket to run a light unless you are, it is red and you are behind that white line. Okay. As long as you have entered the intersection in any way, everybody goes. Come on, everybody goes. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, the, the third thing, the third thing is, um, why are we stopped? Why? You've been, been that way? You're like driving around and, there's, and you're looking, trying to look ahead and trying to see why you're stopped. And, and you're in the left lane and you're doing the requisite 20 miles over the speed limit like every Houstonian's supposed to do. Like every Houstonian is supposed, hear me now, okay? I don't know who the transplants are in the room, but need to hear this. Going the speed limit does not cut it in the left lane, okay? That's just the way it works. But then you peer ahead and there's somebody, somebody, and then that's why you get, why are you stopped? Don't be that guy. And everybody goes all in the same breath. When I see somebody going below the speed limit in the left lane, and they're like a moving roadblock going down, two people just kind of lolling down the road. But I realized, I realized that this sort of revealed that I have bad line anxiety. I, I'm worried about choosing the right line in traffic. Okay, we're here and we're not moving. So I'm the guy who's always changing lanes. Okay, oh no. Okay, we're over here now. We're going to move over here. I'm always changing lanes. I don't just do it in the car though. I do it in the grocery store. 
You ever, you ever be that? I'm always worried. My, my wife hates going grocery shopping with me because we're, we're pulling, we're pushing the cart, and we're like, let's choose this line. I'm like, no, no, that line. No, I'm, not, I'm looking at your basket. I'm looking how, and, and, but for some reason, I always pick the wrong line. I get into the shortest line with the person uh, with the fewest things, and they get up to the front, and this person has never used money before in their entire life, <laughs> right? It's taking forever. They're like, money? What is money? <laughs> and they're trying to, and they're trying to pay with a two-party out-of-state bad check or something. I, I'm like, what is, come on, please. Or like in the airport, right? I, it, it's all, all types of my life. I, when, when I don't know what's going on, when I don't wonder why I'm waiting, I get frustrated. I remember one time um, getting on an airplane and we're, and we're taxied into the runway, everything's on schedule, and we pull to the end of the runway and we stop. And all these other planes just come and take off, pass us, take off past us, take off. I'm like, why can't we go? Why are we stopping? Come on, everybody goes. Come on, let's, let's all go. I was, I was wondering what was going on. And, and then we sat there for like an hour and a half. And then we taxied back and got off the plane. Turns out, I didn't know this about airplanes. It doesn't, doesn't just have to be good weather when you take off. It also has to have good weather when you land. And, and this is new for me. And so they needed us to have a place to land. And there was a storm over our destination airport. And so that was, there was something that I couldn't see that was preventing us from taking off. But I realized when I can't see the reason why we're stopped, I hate being stopped. And I realized that that's, that's, a, that's an attribute that I bring into my relationship with God too. There are times in my life where I look back and, and I've been excited about the race that God has put in front of me to run. I see the fruit that God is bearing in my life. I get excited to do what, what, what we're gonna do and I'm eager for, for, for what lies ahead. And then all of a sudden, bam, bam, God stops on me. And I'm going, God, what, what are we doing? Why are we here? I thought, I thought this was going somewhere. And, and it's weird. We, I know you've probably been in those situations too. Maybe it was a, um, you came back from like a, a great retreat or a period of Bible study and you were eager about the close relationship you had with the Lord and were excited about prayer that was going on in your life and excited about the race God had called you to run. Maybe it was a relationship that you'd been praying about and, and you saw, to see, saw God working in it. Maybe it was a vocation you felt called to uh, and all of a sudden uh, things went cold. And in that moment, when God stops on you, you wonder, you wonder, is, did, did I hear something wrong? Did, did I make a wrong turn? Did I do something wrong? What is going on here? Uh, how can I, did I go off track? And you start to wonder if maybe following God is the right way. The lies start coming up. The, the enemy whispers into your ear, maybe you were foolish to start following to begin with. Well, the good news is, if you've ever been in that situation, or if you're an art, you are in that situation right now, uh, we, uh, we have ample reason to continue to hope in God. Today, we're gonna to look at a passage. We're doing a series here called, called Encounters with Jesus in Luke's Gospel, where we look at the various times when, when Jesus meets people, what they come to him for and what he ends up giving them. And today, we're gonna to look at two miracles he does, but we're not gonna look at the miracles. We're gonna look at something that Jesus does along the way, where Jesus agrees to go help a guy, but along the way, he stops. He stops, and I can only imagine what was going through that person's mind. It's the story of Jairus and um, what happens while, he is, while Jesus agrees to heal his daughter. I'm hoping as we look at that story, you will find comfort, joy, purpose, and hope when God puts you into a waiting period. So the story starts in Luke chapter eight. Luke chapter eight, starting in verse 40. And it starts with a request. The request is, look at verse 40. When Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. And just then a man named Jairus came. He was a leader of the synagogue. He fell down at Jesus' feet and pleaded with him to come to his house because he had, he had an only daughter about 12 years old and she was dying. 
And so Jesus is in a crowd. There's a, a group of people. They've heard about what he can do, and they all want something from him. And they're excited to see him. And Jairus specifically falls down at his feet, begging him to come. He's a leader, and he's, he's humbling himself tremendously. Uh, he's, he's almost making a fool of himself. He's a leader here because he's desperate to have Jesus come help him. He has a daughter, and she's 12, and she's dying. Now, the fact that she's 12 is going to be, be important here, so remember that. But that's the request. And while he agrees to help and they're walking, and as they're going, an interruption happens. The interruption starts at the second half of verse 42. While he was going, the crowds were nearly crushing him. A woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years, who had spent all she had on doctors and yet could not be healed by any, approached from behind and touched the end of his robe. Instantly, her bleeding stopped. Who touched me, Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds are hemming you in and pressing against you. Uh, Someone did touch me, Jesus said. I know that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was discovered, she came trembling and fell down before him. In the presence of all the people, she declared the reason she had touched him and how she was instantly healed. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So it's interesting. Uh, She is, for the last 12 years, the same length as Jairus' daughter has been alive, this woman has been suffering. Uh, She has a a 12-year flow of blood. It's an unspecified illness, but we do know some things about how this would have affected her. We do know that a 12-year flow of blood uh, meant that she was probably very anemic, which meant she was very weak. Uh, She was, according to the Jews, ritually unclean, ceremonially unclean, so she couldn't go to the temple. She couldn't worship. She couldn't be around other people. She, couldn't, she was completely isolated and cut off from, from other people and from her community. And we learn in Mark chapter 5, in this same story, it says, she had endured much under many doctors. She had spent everything she had and was not helped at all. And on the contrary, she had become worse. Utterly and completely and ridiculously hopeless. At the end of her rope, in fact, she is risking her life just by being there because um, people, if, if you come into, the, into a, someone who's ritually unclean comes into an area where other Jews are, it could, they could theoretically end up stoning this person. Okay, but she is so desperate, so desperate to get to Jesus, realizes her life is over to begin with. She, she knows if he, she can just touch, she doesn't want to do it publicly, she doesn't want to draw attention to herself, and she sneaks up and, and, and reaches forward and touches the hem of his cloak. And immediately she's healed. Uh, I love the fact that, uh, that Jesus goes, who touched me? And, and the words that, that, uh, that Peter says in verse 45, master, I wish there, there's an implied phrase there. Seriously, master, come on. Seriously, who? We all touch you. Everybody's touching you, okay? Uh, and he goes, no, 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 I know something happened. I know something happened. And he won't let her go. He won't let her go. He stops. He, he makes her stand. He doesn't single her out but he, he draws her out and she stands up. She stands up, she confesses what happened, she announces that she's been healed. And Jesus, Jesus, something powerful in the phrase. Imagine, I could see just her breaking down into tears the moment this man called her daughter. Just uh, so alone, broke, desperate, hopeless, alone, and all of a sudden, daughter. He restores her, not just her body, he restores her soul. He restores her not just back to health, but back to her community. It's this powerful picture. But then you realize that this story is nested in another story. And while this is still going on, some news arrives. Some news arrives. Look at verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. 
When Jesus heard it, he answered him, don't be afraid, only believe. While he was still speaking, which meant maybe the word daughter was still ringing in the air. And while he's saying daughter, and everyone's hearing daughter, and she's breaking down in tears over the joy of having someone refer to her positively as daughter, someone whispers in Jairus's ear, who's standing at Jesus's, Jesus's elbow, your daughter is dead. Imagine what's, what's going on in Jairus's mind. That's when you realize he's been there the whole time. He has a daughter that's at home who's dying. And this woman's already healed. We know it causes panic because Jesus looks at him, turns him, looks him dead in the eye and goes, don't fear. Don't fear, only believe. So we know there's a look of panic in his eyes. Maybe he's tugging at Jesus' elbow, right? Come on, man, she's healed, we can go. Okay, she doesn't need anything more from you. Maybe he's worried. And put yourself in Jairus' shoes for just a second. Realize, realize maybe, maybe he's worried that that woman stole my daughter's miracle, right? Maybe he's worried that, that Jesus changed his mind. Is he gonna get distracted by every person who needs something from him along the way? I thought you said you were gonna help me, Jesus. Maybe he was like thinking he was like, Jesus is one of those you know, 80s flash cameras that has to recharge after it, after it goes off, right? To wait for just, you have to wait for it to go back. Um, if you're too young for that, that's okay. Um, whatever way, whatever reason there, uh, Jairus is standing there watching this happen. And we know he's panicked because Jesus looks at him and says, don't listen to it. Don't listen to the fear. Your fear is lying to you, don't listen to it, choose to believe. Choose to believe that what I promise to do, I will do. And choose to believe that those lies in your ear, the fear that you hear is lying to you and shut it out. So the story continues. Um, Jesus, Jairus evidently believes enough to allow Jesus to keep coming. And after verse uh, 51 reveals a second miracle. After he came to the house, he let no one enter with him except Peter, John, James, and the child's father and mother. Everyone was crying in mourning for her. But he said, stop crying, because she is not dead, but sleep. They laughed at him, because they knew she was dead. So he took her by the hand and called out, child, get up. Her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And then he gave orders that she be given something to eat. Her parents were astounded, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. They get to the house and people are crying because she is already dead and they know it. They know what death looks like. Uh, this, I love this powerful picture though. Jesus makes them laugh, but not in joy, but in derision because they know what death looks like. He goes, ah, she's not dead, she's just sleeping. And they laugh at him. It's always interesting. The scriptures are full of people who decided that they knew more than God. And they decided to laugh at God because God told them something that was ridiculous. It starts at the very beginning, right? Abraham and, I, Abraham and Sarah, you're gonna have a child. <laughs> and what does Sarah do? Laughed at God. <laughs> That's really impossible. I don't, think you, I don't think you understand the situation. And they do that. And then to show his amazing power, to show his amazing power, he doesn't do some magic big performance. He's like a dad waking a daughter up at the end of a long road trip, right? Come on, girl, get your shoes on, we're at grandma's. Let's go. Child, get up, let's go. Like it's nothing. It's, it's an unassuming but powerful miracle. He turns their crying into derision. He turns their derision into amazement at the powerful miracle of returning this girl back to life. Now, 
And you, as you look at this, this, uh, this series of miracles, I've seen it preached from so many different perspectives. I've seen people teach on the miracle of the woman with the 12-year flow of blood, the importance of the need for community and how when you're, when you're, when you're at the end of your rope, uh, desperately cling to Jesus and see if, by, if you can grab the hem of his cloak and see if he doesn't restore you completely. He longs to heal you. He knows your pain and he wants to restore you. I've seen people talk about, about him re- returning this daughter back to life. Something powerful in the fact that, that Jesus keeps trying to show people that he has the power of, over death. Or one of my favorite Easter verses uh, is uh, Revelation 1, 17 and 18, where the risen Christ tells John, he goes, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the, the, the living. I once was dead, but behold, I am alive forevermore. And I've got the keys of death and Hades. In John 11, he stands before the tomb of his best friend, a man he's about to raise from the dead, and he tells their sisters, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and he who lives and believes will never die. He keeps telling people, look, I've got the power of life and death. I have, I'm powerful over death if you'll just believe me. But there's a third thing here that always stands out to me. Both of those miracles are amazing, but the, the person I, I find myself most often is Jairus is Jairus. I'm a dad and I feel like God stopped on me. So many times I look at the path of my life and I wonder what's going on. I look at, I look at the vocation I've set in or the, the path he's leading me. I go, God, where's this going? It doesn't seem to be going well. And sometimes I feel like I'm just stopped. And when I look at, at this story, I see in what God led Jairus through and I discern a few reasons why God stops. So let's look at them briefly. First, God stops to expand our vision. God stops to expand our vision. Uh, it's, it's interesting that, that the, man, uh, the man had a 12-year-old daughter and uh, this woman had been suffering the entire time she'd been alive. We're supposed to see that. Okay, sometimes in the midst of our pain or in our confusion, we become very self-focused. Pain has a way of doing that. It clarifies our desires, it clarifies, but it sharpens our focus and and limits our horizon. And sometimes God stops on us so that we can expand our vision, not to invalidate our pain, not to say yours doesn't matter. God's not saying, hey, will you just suck it up? This woman has it worse than you. He's not doing that at all. He's not doing that at all. He's not trying to say your pain doesn't matter. He's just saying in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your suffering, expand your vision a little bit. Choose to look. Maybe there's something else along this path I need you to see. You know, and sometimes it's not pain and suffering. Sometimes it's the goal. We become so laser focused on our goal or our objective that we see only that and nothing else. You know, I was, I was sharing with somebody over the weekend. Uh, someone was telling me, oh, we're so sorry to miss your sermon. We're, we're going, to, going, to, uh, going somewhere for, for spring break. I'm like, oh, really? Have you ever been to, I knew the place they were going. And I said, um, have you ever seen such and such? I'm like, no, I've never even heard of that. I'm like, really? It's like, like where is it? I'm like, oh, it's right at the main exit. It's up, up on the highest hill in that area. You can't miss it. I'm like, really? And yeah, yeah, sure. I showed her on Google Maps where it was. And uh, literally, on, yesterday, she texted me. We were driving. She's like, yeah, my husband pointed out to me. He's seen it. I've just never seen it before. They had driven down this same road for 10 years, going to this exact same spot. And because she was laser focused on getting to where they're going, she had never seen this one site that everybody else saw. Maybe God has stopped on you because he wants to expand your vision. He wants you to lift your eyes off of yourself and lift your eyes off of the objective and and he wants you to see something else in your environment that you've been missing. That's what he does for for Jairus. He goes, look, look, this this woman's here too. This, This world is full of people with needs. 
You have a need and I'm gonna help you, but this woman's in need too and I need you to see her as well. God stops to, exp- to expand our vision. Two, God stops to expose our fears. God stops to expose our fears. It's something powerful in the fact that the first words out of Jesus' mouth to Jairus in verse 50, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, only believe. Don't fear. He looks him dead in the eyes and says, stop. Your fear is lying to you. Your fear is lying to you. Choose to believe something else. Sometimes God stops on us to allow that fear to bubble up to the surface. You know, most of us make a mistake about who God is. We treat God like he's some cosmic drill instructor looking to discern our weaknesses uh, so that he can train it out of us, right? And so most of us do a fair amount of, a fair amount of time uh, hiding our weaknesses, hiding our fears from other people and even from God, however fruitless that might be, um, and worried that someone's gonna discern, so that, we're gonna, that God's gonna bully us or shame us or train us or disqualify us because of some fear inside of us. The truth is, the truth is God... God knows, God knows. He's trying to get you to lay it on the altar, right? Um, Psalm, a couple of passages to keep in mind. One, Psalm 103, 14 says this. For he knows what we are made of, remembering that we are dust. He, which means God knows your weaknesses, God knows your infirmities, God knows your pain, God knows your struggles, God knows your worries. He knows it all. And so he's not, he's not, going, he's not going, oh, that's you, Oh, no, then never mind then. We stop because you're out. I don't want you anymore. No, God knows. He's waiting for you to take that fear and put it on the altar. Sometimes he stops to allow that fear to bubble up to the surface. Not so he can shame you for it. Not so he can bully you for it. Not so he can browbeat you for it or rub your nose in it and throw you out in the yard. Uh, But so that as 1 John 4.18 says, so that his perfect love can drive it out. You see, perfect love drives out fear. And he's trying to get you to bring it to the surface so that he can cast it out. He knows it's there. He knows it's there. He's tired of you hiding it. He wants, he wants you to show, to show him that you've decided to believe him more than that. God stops sometimes to expose our fears. And third, God stops to explode our boundaries. To explode our boundaries we frequently put God in a box. We frequently tell God that we trust him and he's able to help as long as he acts in a specific time frame, in a specific set of circumstances. We find him useful under these set of circumstances and nowhere else. And we forget that very often God moves us into areas outside those boundaries to show us that those boundaries are ours and not his. Right, that, that our God is too small, our picture of when God can work and how he can work are too small, and we've, we've set up limits that aren't his limits, they're ours. He wants to remind us that he is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond what we ask or think. He wants, he wants us to realize that he's a God who makes big plans, that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and what has entered in the mind of man, um, what God has prepared for those who love him. So he wants to explode our boundaries. Sometimes he stops there. He stops for a little bit. One, so that fear can bubble up. And why is that fear there? Well, because God, if you don't hurry, it's not gonna work out. If you don't hurry, then this isn't gonna happen. If you don't hurry, we're gonna hit the border. And God's going, I'm, I'm, I'm going past this because you need to realize that's your construct, not mine. How's this hitting you today? How often, <laughs> there you go. How often have you been in the seat of Jairus? Are you in, the, are you in Jairus' seat right now? Have you... Have you been in a time in your life when you, uh, when you were eager for the race that God had set in front of you to run? 
But right now you wonder what's going on. You wonder, uh, did, you, did you do something wrong? Why is this not going forward? You wonder if, if your best days and your usefulness to God are in the rearview mirror. You wonder if maybe you hit a dead end or took a wrong turn. You wonder, God, seriously, is this all there is? Maybe in those moments, maybe in those moments, God is saying, God is saying, I need you. I need you to lift your eyes up. Expand your vision a little bit. See, look around you. Maybe, maybe I've put you exactly where I want you. And maybe there's someone or something that you need for the journey that's living in your world right now. Maybe, maybe he's, he's trying to expose some fears. You've been suppressing it for so long, trying to pretend it's not there. And he's trying to bring some fears to the surface. He's waiting for you, waiting for you to, to, to live out Psalm 62, eight, which says, trust in the Lord at all times. Pour out your heart before him. You can trust him with anything. He knows it's there. He's waiting for you to acknowledge it. He wants, and he wants to show you that his perfect love will cast it out. What fear have you brought here today? And third, what boundaries have you erected for God? Have you said, God, you could have worked if, you had, if, you, if my career had gotten off, off the ground a, a few years earlier, if I had moved to a specific place, if I had done specific things? How have you, have you stood next to him and watched God do something amazing in someone else's life and it's aroused in you bitterness or jealousy or frustration or anger? How many times is God is just saying, look, those are your boundaries and not mine. Don't fear. Don't fear and believe. I'm gonna take you and we're gonna go do something amazing together. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Jairus. I thank you for what you did in Jairus's life. Father, I thank you for his example and then for all the ways in which we find ourselves in, in the footsteps of Jairus. We have heard your call, Father. We, uh, we, we know you're able to do great things and we've seen you do great things in other people's lives, Father, and sometimes we feel stuck. We wonder, we wonder if it's gonna happen for us. We wonder uh, why we're stopped. In the midst of all our, our frustration, Father, help us to find hope, hope in this story, and help us to lift our eyes and expand our vision. Help us, help us to, to realize our fears and lay them before you. Father, help us to, to realize that the boundaries that we've erected are our boundaries and not yours. Show us today, show us today uh, that you, you long to continue working in our lives. You've called us and you are leading us somewhere. Make us eager for the good works you've laid in front of us to walk in. Help us to run with endurance the race that's set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, knowing, knowing that he will bring the work that he started to completion. I pray this in his name and for his kingdom's sake. Amen. Hey, Pastor Ryan Rush here, and I just want to thank you for being with us at Kingsland Online today. What an honor. But I'll tell you what, it'd be even better. We'd love to see you get connected with the physical church in the days ahead, if you haven't already. And that means maybe if you're local in the West Houston area, we'd love to see you at Kingsland. Otherwise, regardless, we'd love to help you facilitate uh, jumping into a local church near you, and we can do that together. You can go to kingsland.org slash online connect, kingsland.org slash online connect to find out next steps on your journey. Listen, thanks again for being with us today at Kingsland Online.